Accessing archive. Authorizing. Access granted. Accessing file. We're here with Susan Hesloger. How are you today, Susan? I am good, Matt. It's nice to join you today. Before we jump into all the stuff that you know, I'm excited to talk about with you. I wanted to just get some some background. Um, if you wouldn't mind telling the listeners, you know, who you are, like what you grew up, you know, doing, uh, maybe your career and your professions, and and then you know how you landed where you are today. Okay. Um, well, uh, let's see, try to make this short. Um, so I grew up in Seattle, Washington, and um, I was always drawn to sort of a magical idea of the universe. I remember thinking I could fly. I had dreams of flying. And in fact, I think when I was about five, I was on the roof of our um, single story home and uh, my dad was cleaning the leaves and he had to go away for a minute and a breeze came up and I think I had a cape on and I jumped off the roof thinking I could fly. Of course, I didn't. And there are a few other experiences, you know, and, and the, the last one was on a swing set and going as high as I could and then my mom calling to me and I just let go thinking I could fly to her and, of course, I didn't. And that was a real, like, no, you can't fly. You're physical. You're human. Mm-hmm. So I have struggled a bit over the course of my life to really be here. And, um, and I think in adolescence, that's where we kind of um, turn into our bodies and become more physical. And um, so there were some struggles in my late teens, early 20s. And it wasn't until I found um, my first experience with LSD at Studio 54 that I really felt that I had um, connected to something that I'd lost. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't really explore much more than that at the time. You know, I, I was a dancer early on, ballet dancing, and then later into modeling and later into acting. And the few times that I did LSD, it it showed me the path forward. Mm-hmm. And I kind of liken it to climbing up to the top of a mountain and being able to see the path that I needed to take to get where I had to go. And that's how it served me in, you know, up until um, my early 30s. And in my early 30s is when I discovered shamanic journey work. And um, starting in my mid-20s, I also began exploring some more spiritual things. I went up to Rajneeshpuram in um, Madras, Oregon, and had a rebirthing experience. I did flotation tanks. I walked over hot coals with... Tony Robbins before it was several thousand dollars, <laughs> uh, you know, anyway. So I had a bunch of experiences that, that sort of helped me see the magic in the world and connect to things and to clear emotional wounds and the things we collect um, over the course of our lives. Uh, but when I learned shamanic journey work, then I discovered dimensions of consciousness and spirits that are there to guide us. Wow. Okay. And that really changed my life, and, um, and that was a practice I did every day for three years, more or less, changing techniques, but always going to the same place and working with these souls. And mm-hmm. so it's been, you know, I gave it up to have kids that for some reason having that connection to these other dimensions so strongly was 
blocking me in some way for having kids. And so mm -hmm. um, I gave it up, had my kids. And then when my children were teenagers, I thought, okay, I'm ready. And nothing worked. And that's what drew me to Stan, um, was thinking I could find uh, an LSD trial somewhere so I didn't get arrested as a middle-aged mother of two. Right. Um, for, and I didn't know anybody that had psychedelics. So, um, mm -hmm. And then I found Stan and read about his work and read about the holotropic breath work attended a workshop where he was speaking. And when I heard him describe quantum physics, tantric science, um, mythology, Eastern spiritual traditions, uh, you know, the whole scope of shamanic journey work, the whole scope of things that he represented felt mm -hmm. to me that if I told his story, then I could share what I had learned over some 30 years of research and my own practices. And, and through his story and his scientific grounding of all of it, it would help people um, find a path that would lead them to their spiritual source. Yes, absolutely. And so the accumulation of that ended up being your film, The Way of the Psychonaut. Exactly. It'll be a releasing fall 2020. And it is a documentary about the life of Stan Groff and, and his work. Um, so you, you touched on a lot there. LSD is a very powerful medicine. Um, it sounds like to you, it was kind of life changing. I guess I wanted to ask, you know, what are its effects for you and what, what did it, you know, how did it open, open your mind and, and what did it do for you there? Well, I think, you know, many indigenous cultures have a rite of passage that involves, uh, some kind of psychotropic um, or entheogen, uh, you know, whether it's uh, mushrooms or um, ergot fungus was part of the Eleusinian mysteries in ancient Greece, mm -hmm. um, whether it's morning glory seeds, um, ayahuasca. There are these rituals that allow people to sort of let go of their attachment to the idea that they're purely physical. Yeah. And what I discovered with my early experiences with LSD was not so much what I experienced later with higher doses in these last few years working on the project, but the, the lower doses sort of just opened me back up to the magic of reality mm -hmm. and to the idea that there's something going on beyond this physical dimension. Right. Um, and, and so it just makes you it allowed me to accept the idea of dimensions of spirit. And I don't know if I would have done that so easily if I hadn't had those early experiences. I don't know if shamanic journey work would have worked without that. Absolutely. And I do have a question about shamanic journey work because I've definitely heard of it, researched it a bit. Um, it seems to be that a lot of times in shamanic journey work, at least how it's been branded in the United States, they tend to not really rely on plant medicines to, to do this journeying. They tend to use a drum or some type of earthing practice or even maybe meditation or chanting. It, I feel like shamanic journey work kind of goes hand in hand with, you know, uh, you know, plant medicines or psychedelics. It, what, what do you think about that? Well, and you're absolutely right. The person that I studied with, and it's a, it's a conversation that we're going to be sharing actually, is Michael Harner, created the Foundation for Shamanic Studies. And I learned shamanic journey work from him. Um, 
gosh, I, I can't even remember the year, but I'm 62 and it was, I was 31. Mm -hmm. So a long time ago. And, um, and you do listen to drumming. And his introduction to Dimensions of Spirit was through the um, Shibipo, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, That's people. Right. And um, they used ayahuasca. But it's, it's hard on my body. And it was hard on his body. And so he actually went around the world and studied shamanic cultures and found that the bulk of them use rhythm fasting, chanting, dancing, but drumming was key. And so drumming is a very powerful driving um, force. And it, it's it, the specific drumming, how many beats per second. And, um, and then you establish where you're going and you really don't need a substance. And in Michael Harner's approach, which he calls core shamanic practices, mm -hmm. um, there's upper world, where you meet your teachers or teacher and the lower world where you meet your animal spirit or spirits. Mm -hmm. And you set an intention, you imagine how you would go up or how you would go down. And then you start the drumming or you listen to the drumming, cover your eyes and go. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, there's always the ritual that I think should be part of any psychedelic journey, which is creating a safe space calling in the elements, right. the directions, asking for guidance and protection um, so that you you honor the spirits that are going to be working with you and you ask for their protection. Wonderful. So in a typical shamanic journey work, you know, workshop, um, it sounds like it opens with a blessing, the calling of, you know, the elements as well as the, the directional kind of appreciation or offering and then what happens you just sit down and start drumming immediately are there anything is there any incense or sage or anything burning or uh i'm just trying to get a visual for yeah. what a ceremony would look like because i've never been to one well often a candle because lighting a candle is a way that um really brings into um it's sort of acknowledging spirit Lighting a candle is one of the first thing people do um, in, in even meditation practice, just to honor spirit. And, um, and sage can be part of that, most definitely, just to sort of clear away negativity and, again, bring in these plant spirits to sort of uh, bless your practice. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, uh, what I have done in the courses that are taught through the Foundation for Shamanic Studies are um, even dancing your animal spirit, um, mm -hmm. making singing, a rattle, um, a drum, you know, just some kind of physical acknowledgement, um, sending gratitude and connecting on an on a energetic level with mm -hmm. the beings that you're going to ask for guidance from. And then when that's done, you lay down, you set your intention, you say mm -hmm. it three times, and you cover your eyes and either someone is drumming for you or you're listening to a recording if you're doing it on your own. Okay. And, um, and then you imagine yourself going up or you imagine yourself going down. And um, Is this just a normal breathing? Like there's not really breath? Normal breathing. Just okay. normal breathing. And it's, it's um, something that you gain greater clarity over time so that... I found that the imagery and um, in my mind's eye, what I saw became clearer the more I did it. Mm -hmm. 
But it's a, I would highly recommend the what is taught through the Foundation for Shamanic Studies because it's really based in um, Michael's vast studies. He had a PhD in anthropology and ethno, he was an ethnologist and a linguist, I believe. And he just, you'll find a lot of information on their website. Right, right. So after you lay down and your eyes are closed, how long is the uh, journey? One hour? No, actually, it's generally 15 to 20 minutes. Okay. And, um, and I was about to say, if it goes too long, people might fall asleep. I'm not sure. Well, that's the point. <laughs> <laughs> no, you definitely, you know, you don't, you don't need that much time because if mm -hmm. you're clear, uh, and intention is very important. And the more specific the question, the more clear the answer. Mm -hmm. um, but once, many years ago, I was trying to write a story and, and I said, what would be a good story to tell? What needs to be shared? And when I went up, it was like a movie playing in my head. And I, it, 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 it just unfolded, like really, like I was watching a movie. And I ended up writing it and have recently um, had it illustrated. And it was so powerful. I've never experienced anything like that. So I feel like if you were to go to a shamanic journey work ceremony, even on a microdose, you would probably have even more of a profound experience. Maybe that's not required, but do you it, think that that's, that would be the case? I don't know. Um, you know, I really don't know. I've never done it. I, I do know that when I've tried marijuana, it doesn't work at all because you're just scattered. Yes. Um, you can't. It's not the same focus. And, mm -hmm. um, and honestly, I never needed it. And, um, you know, that's why, that's what I enjoyed about it was that the profound nature of the connection when there's no substance involved, that's really magical because you rec I recognized that, um, that there really is a spiritual dimension or dimensions that, and these spirits really do work with me or, and can work with everyone and want to. And when you have that profound connection with no substance, but just your intention, right? it's undeniable. Yep. It's just, I mean, there's just no, I don't know. It, yeah. I think that people don't go through the effort of what it takes to get there. You know, that 15 minutes with your eyes closed and uh, all the ceremony uh, surrounding that experience before they have some type of um, affirmation that it will work for them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's maybe what, you know, LSD has done for you. As, as you were saying, it gave you some type of, um, you know, experiential understanding that they're is more going on than what meets the eye. And then I think that piques interest in people to try things like holotropic breathwork or shamanic journeying or meditation or yoga or the types of things that happened at Ragnishpuram. Because previous to that, I mean, it, it really feels, especially as an American, like a very fringe thing going on. It's like you don't quite understand it. You don't know why people do it you don't have any mystical experience under your belt. So you don't really see that it would work or have the chance to work. But once you know that those things through your experience, you know, are possible, you're open to trying them. When you try them with an open heart, they work. Absolutely. And, yeah. and that's where, so 
over the course of the summer, we had a series of um, expert interviews that we shared through the way of the Psychonaut website. And they're all live, they're all archived on the live stream archive page. And you just have to become a member to watch them. Mm-hmm. And Paul Groff, Stan Groff's brother, talked about his work with mood disorders and fMRIs, which show brain wave oscillation patterns. And he talked about how psychedelic states are very similar to manic or depressive states in that your brain wave goes beyond what is the normal um, range. Mm. And, and that you will, a flashback then is the brain going back to that wave uh, without the substance, long out of your body, but something triggers it, a smell, a flash of light, you know, whatever. And suddenly you go back there, a song that you heard during a session. Yes. And and so once you've had that oscillatory pattern introduced through a psychedelic or spiritual emergence or whatever that experience is, you can go back there through a technique. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I recognize that the um, psychedelic experiences are perfect ways of creating that path you will take to get to the dimensions through the shamanic journey work, um, the dimensions of the teachers or the animals. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you want to look at it another way, um, we as human beings, Stan describes the birth process, or even transpersonal psychology describes past life memories. We come into this life with already uh, experiences and memories and perspectives that shut us down in many ways uh, that that are maybe fear-based. We didn't fully understand. Uh, we're hanging on to things that were traumatic. And then we began life and God knows what happens to us <laughs> if nobody gets a perfect upbringing. There's always something. And all these things accumulate and we it's like a shell mm-hmm. and it can be really thick depending on what you've had to go through and what you come in with. And so a psychedelic can shatter that. And um, deep, higher dose experiences can really break that down Mm -hmm. so that you're more open to the subtlety of the information that's available in these dimensions. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. That's absolutely it. And then once you are more aware I think that, you know, even once, you know, the the effect of a substance or plant has worn off, you now have a point of reference uh, to know that you don't see everything, you know, just the way that it is. Our minds have this kind of uh, filtration device going on for the most part of our life where it just shows us really very little of what's going on and really we're just listening to an internal dialogue it seems like um this is what i have to do next this is what i just did this is what i'm thinking of now we're never like well not never but we're we're rarely in just the the present moment without thought and i think psychedelics shows you the present moment without thought being this kind of infinite now almost like the eckhart tolle concept of of the, the, the infinite now, the infinite silence, it takes kind of having learned how to do it once or twice, it's like a muscle you develop to, to enter this like peaceful state 
of just kind of awareness without thoughts. And it's not that thoughts don't come up because they do, but they're less loud. You know, like usually that's all we hear is thoughts. Um, this way, you're like 90% in the moment, maybe 10% thoughts are coming and you just say, oh, I, I let that thought go. And that's kind of what the practice of meditation is. But just mindfulness, really, I think that's just the practice of mindfulness. Absolutely. And, you know, as you were speaking, so many thoughts were triggered. We have our neurophysiology. Uh, I've studied that over the years and I'm no expert, but I know enough that mm -hmm. our we as a species remember most um, what wasn't good. And our um, eyes take in less than 10% of what's actually out there. Mm -hmm. And we make up the rest from memory. And, and so, again, our memories hang on to uh, you know, what was bad as a survival mechanism. So imagine that when things happen, instead of seeing what is, instead of really being fully in the moment and sensing all the possibilities of something that's occurring we're projecting onto that moment memories that were unpleasant. Mm -hmm. And sort of, if you consider quantum physics, in some way, we're kind of programming the present and future through our past unhappiness. And so yeah. the real challenge is to meet the world as it is mm -hmm. and not through the filter of our disappointments and struggles, whether right. it's our own personal lifespan or our ancestors. Mm -hmm. So it is very important. And you spoke about the importance of now and the infinite now. There's a documentary called The Last Dance that um, features Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of his teammates said, I think Michael's success was that he was always present. Yeah, He was never, you know, those three point shots we would fail over and over. Michael would get them all the time. And he said, I'm not thinking about if the future will I make it or the past I didn't make it last time. I'm only here right now. Mm -hmm. And That's and it frees you. Mm -hmm. I think it takes a certain type of, of effort that most people might not be willing to put forth. It's because we're already, you know, um, inundated with needing to use our energy uh, towards work, towards, you know, communication, toward all the stuff, it like to actually be open and be in the now and um, to be able to transmute, for example, you know, your, your negative past experiences and try to not paint them onto what's happening in front of you now. It takes a certain type of effort and energy. And I think that might be the reason why, you know, these, these methodologies and also medicines and even diet can help increase your energy to the point that that level of, you know, required energy to meet the day with a fresh slate, um, much, much more attainable, you know, like if you're eating really bad food, um, you know, putting way too much poisons in your body, um, it's going to be like, you're kind of more gripey, kind of more on a low frequency. And it's like, Oh, I don't want to, you know, think open-minded right now. You know, I just feel this way. But if, you incorporate, you know, these practices, meditation, I feel like cleans the palate a bit. Um, diet, you know, eating, you know, certain, you don't have to, I don't, I don't, I'm personally not a, like a total vegan anymore. I have been in the past for several years, 
but I feel like still being conscious of how heavy the things you eat um, definitely helps you be able to meet the day with more of that open mind. Um, and then as well, you know, things like psychedelics, I feel like they absolutely cleanse, you know, your perspective. Um, and, and it lasts for several days to weeks after a successful psychedelic experience if you took it seriously. Absolutely. I mean, so again, you, you said so many really uh, <laughs> clear things there. And first of all, the suppression of painful emotions requires an awful lot of energy. Mm-hmm. And um, what psychedelic experiences or spiritual practices can do is help us clear those emotions and face them and heal them, um, mm-hmm. forgive ourselves and others, release anger, uh, and then discover the pain that's behind it. And then you have more energy freed up. And again, toxins, yes, physical toxins from our environment that we ingest and or inhale. Mm-hmm. Uh, mental toxins, again, the anger, the hatred, fear, all of those things that accumulate, we don't even know that we're holding on to. Mm-hmm. And energetically, if your physical body and your mental body are weighed down with junk, then energetically, you're just not going to function at your optimal. And yeah. and so, yes, psychedelics, and particularly, you know, ayahuasca is the one I would say that the purging is, I feel, actually drawing out physical, mm-hmm. mental, energetic um, negativity from the body and mm-hmm. clearing it from you. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not my favorite thing to do, I can tell you, sure. but it's really powerful. And, um, and then once I believe you've made the effort through diet and, and this other work, you do have the energy for the meditative practices. And it may seem like it takes too much time or energy, but again, it's like exercise. The more you do it, the better you get, the easier it is. And just energetically connecting to these dimensions of energy that are beyond our negative middle yeah. world bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where you get charged. Yeah. Because yeah, it's easy. It's actually, you know, easy to get swept up in the minutia of the everyday. It takes more effort to remain, you know, more in, in the present moment or, or at least remaining with that open mind, that sense of you don't know it all because a lot of people, it's easy to start to think that you know it all, especially if you're a successful person. You're like, well, I've got this far, you know, knowing what I know. So I I must be pretty good at knowing stuff. But at the same time, there's always a new challenge, a new person that that is going to have to uh, challenge the way that you see things and you have to open your mind and react in a peaceful manner, or actually I should say respond and not react because respond you you know you can have someone be, be on a completely different you know like side of a, like a political debate than you and it doesn't have to get angry and nasty it could just be you know you have your view i have mine i'm going to respond in kind i'm not going to automatically assume you're a bad person because you're saying you like this guy versus this person you exactly. know and yeah it takes that effort and i think you know it's a mark of intelligence to be able to have a discussion um, and not necessarily agree with that person. Like it takes a certain level of energy and being present here. And I think psychedelics, um, 
in a certain regimen, and I, I would say definitely don't overuse them, but at the same time, there's like a, a certain amount of uh, in touch with them you need to be because it can certainly wear off if it's been some years since your last experience and you haven't really integrated spiritual practice in every day. It's very possible to go back to that very closed-minded version of yourself. Um, but what do you think about that and how maybe often or frequently you know, people should use these medicines to remind themselves of uh, the, the more spiritual dimensions of life if they've lost touch with it. Well, I, I think I think you're absolutely right that um, we we you know that that a particular spiritual practice can just as I mean, although it is connecting us to things, we very rarely want to see the re- truly um, dark aspects of our nature. And, um, and one thing that a psychedelic will do is peel that back Mm -hmm. so that there's no escaping it. And a periodic use is not a bad idea. You know, maybe once a year or something like that, or once every few years. Um, I have found though, that, um, shamanic journey work was very helpful Mm -hmm. in, um, maintaining that humility and, uh, because if I would ask a question, why am I so upset about this? I would be shown what it was that I didn't want to face. Mm-hmm. And so I, I did find that the, that constant work with your spirits or teachers can be very helpful and, um, and definitely was helpful to me. What, I, what I've noted is that spiritual teachers uh, who have relied heavily on meditation, that circled back to psychedelics, it can be overwhelming yeah. if, if you are naturally, ha- you know, like 40, 50, 60% there. Yeah. And um, I think those people just need a little bit, a little. Yeah. Like, like, they don't need the, the whole, because everyone else has so many walls and defenses up. Exactly. They need a big yeah. amount of, yeah. But, but for someone who's already fairly present, that little bit would probably go a long way. And I actually have noticed that I need less and less yeah. the more uh, I've done. Yeah. Like it used to be like, I need three and a half to feel it at all of maybe mushrooms. And then now I could feel it on 0.5. You yes. Know? yes. No, <laughs> so. I, I'm absolutely with you. In fact, it's so clear to me that those high dose days are over mm-hmm. um, because then it's like torture. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just far too much. I don't need it. I, yeah. I can get there. I can get pretty darn far with nothing. And that's why I think these are a different class of drug is because every other drug that is a destructive drug says no more and more and more and more. Yep. These, they're self-regulating. They're like, they're like, okay, well, you need this much this time, but next time you don't really need as much and actually not as frequently either. You know, It's very no. like it, self-balancing. And that's why I feel like I mean, of course, I think everyone knows it's been ridiculous that they were classified as Schedule One substances when they have a ton of value and they're nowhere near no. any type of those other hard drugs, especially because they don't want you to keep using them. If no. anything, they say, use me less, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, definitely. Uh, most definitely. And I want to come back to something else you said, which I thought was really good. You, you mentioned that it's a mark of intelligence to engage in dialogue with someone that you don't agree with. And, uh, you know, I'm going back for my master's. I'm in my early 60s and I, I don't have the vocabulary of a lot of the folks that are in my courses and half the time they say things and I don't really know what they're saying. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, so one of the words that is used is dialectic. 
and a dialectic is just that. It's a conversation between um, perspectives that are not in alignment, opposing points of view. But it's the tension that occurs between these differing perspectives that allows for something new to come forth. And so we don't learn anything if we surround ourselves by people who agree with everything we say. Mm -hmm. We learn so much more when we're willing to engage and um, entertain ideas that don't quite align with how we see the world because there's another point of view that maybe we haven't explored yet. Right. And if we could see that broader perspective that includes both of those points of view, well, now you have a new version of reality. Right, exactly. It reminds me of this uh, spiritual image and maybe even concept that, that comes from some mystical tradition about um, you know reality being like a multifaceted diamond. Mm-hmm. And so just like you could look at it through so many angles and you'll see a different thing going on from on the inside, you know, just like if you had like kind of a bigger crystal or diamond with all these, you know, solid facets in it and you would be able to see inside, it's like a kaleidoscope in every direction, but they're all right, mm-hmm. you know, or they're all equally wrong. So they're all equal though. It's all equally right or wrong. And it really just is. And that's like the Tao, you know, mm-hmm. um, the way it is, it just is. It's not that it's right or wrong. It just is. It's just the way that nature preserves its natural harmony, its natural balance. You know, I kind of heard this in a YouTube video recently about what is the Tao. Well, it's it's the force that makes the sun come, you know, come up and then go down and then come back up and then go back down. And then the same with the waves. They come to shore, they return. They come to shore, they return. No, nothing's right or wrong. No one's making it happen. It just is. And there's this kind of natural um, way that things go. And I think, you know, tuning into the present moment is where that exists. And so much of the disconnection that we have from reality or from other people is because in our mental, we're right. There is no multifaceted diamond. Mm-hmm. It's no, I need to prove you wrong. <laughs> yes. That's not the way it should be. And that's, you know, what I think would really help the world get past to this crazy stage we're at of disagreeing. Everyone's disagreeing. Every, no one agrees, it seems like. And um, for people to come more into agreeance and compassion, um, you know, these medicines certainly would help, but even just some type of spiritual practice, I really wonder if there's going to be kind of like a new spiritual age where maybe there's a new figure. Have you ever wondered, would there be a new figure in religion, a new Jesus, a new Buddha, you know, like for this age to connect us all? (laughs) I don't know. I mean, because I think, I think part of the problem is uh, as soon as there's a figure, uh, you know, uh, states um, or governmental bodies want to co-opt it in some way or, you know, so that they can gain power and create an elite. And I mean, I'll reflect on something um, Rudolf Steiner suggested. And and also Robert Bella talks about this. He's a, somebody out of Harvard um, from years ago who passed, I think, I don't know when, recently. But anyway, the idea that 
original humanity, the first humans that that we recognize as, you know, sort of the seed of our species, mm-hmm. had this embedded relationship with the natural world. Steiner said that that was the the, you know, toddler phase of humanity where there's no sense of being separate from the world. You're one with, you're you're absolutely melded, unified with all the, you know, world that you encounter. It's a more spiritual, less physical um, experience. And if you want to think of, of your etheric body, it's so expanded that there's really no differentiation between you and the surrounding world. Then, you know, now, for instance, we're in our uh, adolescent phase where we now have a sky god and now we're completely disconnected from that natural world. We have become individuals or we have individuated, we have differentiated from this natural world and we feel separate and lost. And this stage that we're coming into is where that spiritual source is within us where we are, um, you know, it's our personal connection to that source of creation that is our religion now or our our spiritual practice, not someone who's telling us what it is. Mm -hmm. And and that's important. That's sort of the value of shamanic journey work. And that's why shamans and so-called witches were wiped out during the Inquisition they killed some, I don't know, 9 million women during that period because they called them witches wow. um, and took about 600 years. But the idea was they wanted to cut out the middleman. They wanted to cut out the religions that were forming and these various governments. They wanted to shut down a direct connection to that spiritual information. Right. And, and now is the time to reconnect individually to that spiritual source and discover that we're all unified and, and like you say, you know, my, I'm right, you're wrong. You know, that idea, that's not right because we're all part of the same thing. And we are seeing a different side of that diamond or that right. crystal. And so it's all right. And, you know, from that perspective, it's all right. And, and it's in all of us. And, um, you know, so those are the things that can move us forward, I believe. I don't right. think it's so much about one person coming forward because that always goes south uh, mm-hmm. generally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, um, this is a little bit of a, of a redirect, but you earlier had touched on Ragnish Puram. And of course I saw the documentary wild, wild country and was very intrigued. Um, how, how much involvement did you have at that community? Because I feel like it ties in a little with what we're saying. Cause he, you know, it ended up being controversial at a point, but, but I recently learned that he's been a, you know, he's like a religious icon now, um, even despite the controversy. Um, so tell me about your experience there and what well, was think, right, what was wrong, you know? Yeah. I mean, I encountered, I, I learned about him through an acting teacher named, um, um, oh God, I'm forgetting his name now out of New York. Uh, but anyway. And we're referring to Osho, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Rajneesh Puram. Um, it was my acting teacher that told me about him as I was sort of, he was incorporating some of the practices in our acting work. And, um, he, you know, I went through, uh, I was using these techniques in the middle of, um, screen test with Nicolas Cage for a movie called Thief of Hearts. And, uh, I was supposed to be feeling guilty about having an affair 
as a married woman and I'd actually had an affair as a married woman and I wasn't feeling guilty and I was trying to draw on my own personal feelings and there weren't any. Mm -hmm. And so I kept going deeper, deeper, deeper. And I sort of broke through into, it felt like I dropped into a deep, dark pit and it was completely empty. And Wow. I took a, I came out of it, managed to get through the scene with all these people filming the screen test and then, and then just started crying and cried for like, I don't know, many, many hours. And what I realized was that my life was a lie. Wow. And so my acting teacher, I ended up getting a divorce and my, and I told my acting teacher, well, I didn't get the part, but I woke up and I realized my life is a lie. And, you know, and he's going, oh, slow down. <laughs> And uh, let, let, why don't you consider going to Rajneesh Puram? Because I think it might be helpful for you to work through some of this stuff and maybe connect with yourself spiritually. And so, so, I, so just to, to 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 be clear, you were using the methods of Rajneesh Puram to help you get into a deeper place, right? Yeah. yeah. And someone that you knew had had maybe shown you a book, or did they teach you just like in person? Warren Robertson is the name of the acting teacher. And he uh -huh. was he was a sannyasin. He was going there and participating. And he was teaching. They have meditation techniques where you dance as hard as you can or you shout as much as you can for like 10 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever. And then you lay down. Yes. And then you just feel this energy. And so it was really about connecting your, to yourself as being energetic and then once you kind of got this energy loosened up and freed, then you had access to information and emotions that might otherwise be shut off. And got so it. he used this as a technique for going deep. And so this is what I was doing in this screen test. And it yes. took me to a level of you know reality that I hadn't Wow. encountered before. And so I want to try those techniques. <laughs> oh God. Anyway, so Rajneesh Puram, <laughs> it was very interesting. My sister had given me a joint, you know, as we were driving down there, my mother went with me because everybody thought I would give them all my money. Mm. And um, they found, uh, you know, they were going to have a dog sniff my car because they were worried about bombs. And so I said, well, here's this joint because I'm sure the dog will find it. And mm -hmm. I had to go to their court and they ended up letting me, you know, off with nothing because I had given it to them. Right. Um, I stayed in a hotel. Other people could stay in um, tents. Mm -hmm. They had a restaurant. They had gambling, dancing, drinking, smoking. <laughs> it was like, what? And um, But they, they had these amazing um, therapists. And so we did rebirthing. Mm -hmm. And um, that was so powerful. They had their morning meditation, which is, uh, you know, you would shout for so many minutes, you would dance for so many minutes, you would, I don't know, it was, it was just about, and then you would lay still for so many minutes. And it was just yeah. about trying to get everything moving. Um, the rebirthing experience was incredibly powerful. We did bioenergetics that introduced me to the idea that emotion is l locked in your muscles. Mm -hmm. And um, forest yoga approaches this in a similar way where you exhaust the muscle mass and then the emotion is released. And wow. so we were stomping our feet on the ground and had our hands over our head, you know, going, oh, oh, oh. Yes, for, I remember that. Yeah. I remember seeing that in the, in the film. And so we did that. And after like, you know, 15 minutes, I was tired. So I sat down and they said, get up. And I said, I'm resting, get up. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> so, you know, after 20 minutes, you're mad. And mm -hmm. um, when you make eye contact with people, you you don't give a shit anymore about being nice. That, that uh, 
veneer of uh, civility is gone and you just wish you could kill everybody. And then, then you stop and they would walk around people and I, they could tell by posture, I'm guessing, where emotion was held. Mm. And then they would touch someone's shoulder or back or um, maybe arm, mm -hmm. you know, maybe chest, uh, always respectfully, very respectfully. Sure, and sure. every single person started sobbing. Yeah. Every single one. Yeah. And then they said, turn to the person to your, you know, next to you and hug them. Mm -hmm. And then we just held each other and sobbed. And mm -hmm. there's that moment of, uh-oh, I'm touching another human being. It's got to be sexual. And no, mm -hmm. we're just going to cry. Right. And, and you realize the shared pain we carry. Mm -hmm. That was so powerful. And then the actual rebirthing um, was, again, feeling like you're dropping into the most painful pit you could ever imagine. And then all of a sudden, uh, you burst through into this tremendous sense of love. And I went through a really nasty 10 years after that, trying to get out of my marriage and bad decisions I'd made. And, mm -hmm. and that, that got me through it. Mm -hmm. Powerful. So is it something you would still practice? No, I don't think I, I mean, so, <laughs> uh, you know, Rajneesh at the time he was driving, he wasn't talking. Um, his books were always very good. He would drive through in a Rolls Royce. He had many of them, <clears throat> and he had people on either side of the vehicle with uh, automatic rifles mm -hmm. because they were worried of him getting killed or whatever. And everybody would line the path dressed in colors of the sunrise or sunset, writhing in ecstasy. And, and I just, <laughs> I didn't feel it. And I remember him making eye contact with me, and he basically nodded like, yeah, you get it. So I don't think he took seriously all the adulation he got and in yeah. the end i think because he he stepped away um there were elements that unraveled his organization i didn't see all of the documentary but it it didn't turn out well mm -hmm. and um and i think when any individual getting back to what you were saying when any individual tries to be the one who's going to lead others to spiritual uh betterment mm -hmm. that is you're taking on a lot yeah and and it is such a dangerous path to take yeah. um i mean jerry falwell jr <laughs> for example uh you know um all the business coming out about him watching his wife have sex with some pool boy that they entered into a relationship with i mean it just gets twisted right yeah, I, I could see that. And I think that it's not something I'm sure people consider when they start to be a spiritual um, guru or whatever that kind of role they might be filling is. And I think that it definitely gets away. I've seen so many documentaries about this, you know, from the Bikram yoga to, you know, that this, you know, Wild Long Country was nothing like that. But um, but also that what was the one called? Um, there was a guy named Father Yod. Um, mm -hmm. the source family, another really great documentary, but it ended up going kind of south, um, because he was definitely like a spiritual figure. And, um, it's just so, it's so weird how it can't really, you know, where is the middle ground? Where is, you know, that middle path that would work for a spiritual community? Because 
you know, when it becomes idolizing someone, it tends to not work out. But but what could, you know, what could work? You know, I guess just I think maybe just like it, you just have to be very um, selfless and not interested in and egoic gains and fame and 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 wealth and these types of things but it it could be possible i'm sure many communities have existed that worked and maybe they weren't even written about or known about but there's some middle ground i think when it comes to a community like a spiritual community because there's certainly mission Mm -hmm. people feel a sense of mission to share the sense of peace maybe that they have experienced and they know that you know maybe through yoga or meditation they could guide other people there but it's just a level of groundedness that has to be there for them not to get on this kind of uh, ego trip mm-hmm. where they're now, you know, the chosen one or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, and I think bottom line, that spiritual um, divinity is in all of us. Mm-hmm. And um, there may be some who are better at uh, being responsible for a community or organizing a community but it's service leadership. It should never be um, about power. And, uh, and I think the more it's a spiritual practice that that's, again, you know, shamanic journey work. It's everybody's connection to the divine. There's no one person telling you what that meant. You're the one that's meant to figure it out. And, um, and so the value is the individual and their own personal connection and potentially seeking understanding. There are some traditions that feel you need a teacher. The gurus um, believe that you need a teacher to help you see the parts of yourself that you're not willing to face. Mm-hmm. Well, again, I found in the shamanic journey work that your teachers will tell you what's true if if you're you know willing to hear them, the right. ones that you meet on these dimensions of spirit. And life has a way. <laughs> it's funny how those spiritual teachers, while they seem to be surrounded by grace, they're also kind of tough. They're oh, tough yeah. on you. You know, they're kind of like telling you you're stupid. <laughs> <laughs> well, but then yeah. you, you respect them such that you you don't get mad the way you would a normal person. Yeah. Well, maybe you know, take, take something to heart and maybe try to better yourself. I don't know. I noticed that, though. Like, I noticed whether it be a yoga teacher or some guru, just I've seen through documentaries. I've never really been in a community with a guru. Um, although I'm, you know, I'm, I'm definitely, I understand it. I find intrigue in it. Um, but yeah, like they're, they're always kind of tough too. And sometimes maybe you don't want to hear the truth, you know? No. And I mean, I guess that would be the value of a periodic psychedelic experience that, and again, you know, I mean, um, MDMA is very helpful for confronting pain. Um, but as uh, Rick Doblin was saying during our Q&A after his interview that streamed this summer, mm-hmm. it loses its impact over time. And, um, and so it, after a while, it's just not going to give you what it did. Mm-hmm. Other substances or, or plant medicines like ayahuasca or mushrooms may not always be so cheerful. And, um, mm-hmm. and so it's the difficult experiences that are the ones that really teach us the most. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and it's our, op- our humility, our willingness to, uh, hopefully over time, we develop um, less fear of not being loved. And it's easier to hear 
people comment on our behavior. And I think the other thing to watch is what triggers us. And to learn that if we're really angry about something, that there's something in us um, that resonates with that, that's bothered by it. And, and how do we, you know, confront that part of ourselves? I mean, it's tricky. You can watch a documentary like we did last night about the sexual abuse that took place in USA um, swimming and gymnastics and soccer and in Europe, same thing in various fields, uh, how young minors are being sexually abused by their coaches and trainers, but the people running the federations don't do anything about it because they're winning medals. They're winning, even the Olympic Commission did nothing. And, you know, and you can watch those things and be horrified and disgusted. But, you know, then you can look back and, and go, you know, that's part of all humanity. Um, how did those people get that way? And, and to try to understand, you know, what's behind that reaction. Right. Yeah, it's weird because it's definitely in the raising, but it's also in the culture, you know, mm -hmm. and our culture doesn't really make it a forefront, um, I think, to have some type of, you know, meditative practice or, or anything. Because I don't want it to sound like you have to be like, quote unquote, spiritual to be mindful. <laughs> yeah. And to not do things that are wrong. You know what I mean? Like, you don't have to have this sense of psychedelic wonder that maybe, you know, a, like a like an average, you know, psychonaut has, or you don't have to be this like, you know, blissed out meditation guy to still live like a good life and not do things that, you know, for instance, the things that these people are doing and, you know, the abuse and stuff. And people should just know that you don't do those things or something, but because I don't know, like religion in modern America doesn't do a good job of instilling it. And it just kind of doesn't feel whole either. Like, like I grew up uh, Christian Catholic and of course, he, you know, hearing the wisdom in, in the church, but also feeling equally like, I don't believe it. I don't, be I don't believe what they're saying. I don't believe that these people even do what they're saying. <laughs> When they weren't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah. Because it didn't feel authentic, I, I went away. And the only thing that has, you know, felt authentic has been these understandings through uh, the self, understandings mm -hmm. through your own personal experience of um, different frames of mind, altered states of consciousness, whatever it is that just allows you to um, consider so much more to what's going on in the field of reality than we are typically, you know, like uh, privy to. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. It, well, it, so what you're saying is so interesting because, you know, we are living in this incredibly polarized political environment. And, um, you know, somebody was saying, I live in this, you know, Trump world environment. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, these people hate liberals because liberals are weak compassion is weakness, um, self, you know, being critical or reflecting on oneself is weakness. Um, so, you know, there's this idea somehow that, I don't know, that, that I, I read somewhere to paraphrase, um, mm -hmm. conservatives are more comfortable with authority and liberals are more willing to question. And mm -hmm. conservatives tend to have less psychological trauma 
um, if they marry another conservative, they tend to be very happy. Um, whereas liberals tend to be uh, more neurotic <laughs> mm-hmm. because they're always questioning. And so there's some middle ground there. Mm-hmm. There's there we need to the part of the frontal cortex of our brains is the last sort of part that has evolved in in the human species and it's the one that's meant for critical reflection mm-hmm. and we're meant to critically reflect and to question and to decipher and to consider the oldest part of our brain the reptilian brain is the reactive mm-hmm. the fight or flight um you know it, it's yeah. the part of us that is automatic right we have to move beyond that mm-hmm. if we're going to survive and and so you know again either extreme isn't going to get us there somewhere in the middle right i agree you know and i'm definitely not qualified to make any suggestions as to how to get there but it makes sense that there would be some type of like meditation class that you take in school you know like that oh yeah some type of start is like even in elementary school it's like hey we're all going to meditate for 20 minutes you know five times a week i think the whole culture you know and some people would hate it i hate the meditation part but hey you know go inside and talk about why you hate it you know (laughs) well also also matt meditation builds neural pathways Mm -hmm. just like a psychedelic will will give you this oscillating brain wave that is beyond the normal experience meditation whatever you do you build neural pathways around that mm-hmm. so you know i'm not a huge fan of of um video games because they tend to rely on really quick reactivity and um and so those neural pathways get reinforced the more cr- the the thinking or the brain activity involved in meditation will build neural pathways over time blood flow will go there the more you do it the more the french word is recule the more time you will have to consider before reacting it Mm -hmm. buys you time it's the difference between a navy seal failing a candidate failing one of their tests or getting past a test that one of the tests is they put them in a pool and they have a source of oxygen and people keep jumping in and pulling it out of their mouths and tying Mm -hmm. it in a knot and they have to stay calm and untie the knot and stick it back in their mouths. Wow. So, you know, and so that the ones that fail and about 70 to 80% of them do are the ones who panic. Mm -hmm. The ones who succeed are the ones who have the capacity to calm down, deal with it, solve it, and they're fine. That's it. And so meditation over time, will build the neural pathways that permit us to reflect, to consider before mm-hmm. reacting. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I feel like one of the effects that, that I notice after I have meditated is that, um, that that kind of frustration tick that occurs when something doesn't go your way. You know, you, you spill your coffee, you know, you stub your toe, whatever it is. It is like, it's gone almost. It's almost like, oops, that was silly. Instead of, God darn it, I I did, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like the frustration about life and the little, you know, the little things that happen, it kind of just like that reactive part like goes away for a period after you meditate. Yes. And the more and more you do it, the more that becomes your natural state of being. 
And I'm definitely not, you know, 100% in that realm. But after I meditate, I notice for two, three hours afterwards, I'm definitely more in that zone. And there's so many practices that, that allow that same type of, I think, you know, again, mindfulness that I do, for example, sitting in the sauna for 40 minutes or an hour. When you get out because of that big stress that you've been through, everything else seems like way smaller, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so there's that's just a couple of ways I like to stay in touch with with that kind of like because I think frustration is a normal part of life, but there you could come at it more constructively and and keep more in track, you know, keep more on track with um, what you want to feel daily, you know, like we often feel like we have no control no control over our feelings and the things we're going to feel that day but that's not the case you Mm -mm. have a lot of control over your feelings you just have to be very aware you know well and, and you mentioned something which i think is really important to realize they've you know they've done studies uh where they show plants that grown in a lab that are given optimal uh conditions aren't very resilient Plants that have wind blowing at them or um, have to go through periods where they're not getting the water they need, uh, they become much more resilient. Mm-hmm. All that to say that the challenges we encounter in life make us strong if we know how to meet them without feeling attacked or victimized. Mm-hmm. And so the most powerful thing that I've gained over the years is I might get really mad when things don't work out. But I always have to stand back and go, what am I meant to learn by this? Yeah. What, what's the opportunity to grow from this experience? And it has been helpful, I have to say, becoming more aware of um, planetary transits mm. and what's called archetypal astrology, which is understanding that planets represent these archetypal forces. Saturn is hard lessons and contraction and limits, um, often things falling apart, Jupiter expansion, it can be, you know, accumulating wealth, or it can be uh, going too far in the wrong direction. Neptune can be connecting to something deeply spiritual, and, you know, um, becoming embedded in the natural world. And it can also be addiction and and a a desire to escape. So Mm -hmm. when you understand these planets and and what they're where are they and what are they doing in relationship to my natal chart where they were when i was born it can be really helpful in gaining some uh peace and feeling like okay i understand this Mm -hmm. is just the way it's going to go for these next weeks months maybe a year but um keep my good sense of humor and i'll get through it absolutely yeah, I think that system is so helpful for um, letting it be known that there will be periods like that and it being a normal thing because so many people will feel like, why is this happening to me? And they feel like it's just them. Exactly. Like, my life is terrible. Oh, like, why does my life suck so bad? And they don't have any, you know, form of, of awareness that, you know, these things are normal. They happen. Um, you know, they, you know, they might not have to believe that the planetary energy is affecting that situation the way that someone who, you know, subscribes to astrology would, but to at least know 
that it is a normal part of days, weeks, months, and years for things to just go haywire and be wrong. Yep. And, you know, like that's normal. So, but, you know, you don't understand that if you don't ever study it. But that's the thing is I think about learning astrology is helpful. Again, even if you don't fully subscribe to the belief of planetary energies affecting our reality, I mean, although I, I think that's very interesting and, and certainly under psychedelic states, it makes a ton of sense. Um, but um, for, for the average person who, who, who doesn't subscribe to it, you can still kind of see, just check in on what the, the, the energy is to know that maybe a lot of people are going through a tough period. Like, for example, Mercury retrograde is mm -hmm. known for things to just like things go haywire. Your car doesn't work you know, your computer breaks, all this like stuff happens, you know, all of these things are going to happen, whether you, <laughs> whether you're aware that they're, ha they're going to happen or not. So just being aware kind of helps you stand apart from it a little and be like, well, you know what, it'll pass and things will be better because the planets will change, you know? Yeah, yeah, it, know. absolutely. The, the more, the more we understand about the way the world works, um, the better things are. And I just, I want to circle back before we started recording, we, um, we talked about something. Um, we talked about the Akashic field and yeah. morphic resonance. And so over the course of the summer, we had a conversation with Rupert Sheldrake and, um, and we didn't have a conversation with Irvin Laszlo, but he, he talks about the Akashic field. And these are non-physical dimensions of information and the Akashic field is, uh, contains everything that ever was and ever will be. And, and so, you know, Irvin believes that we don't have past lives. We just tap into things that happened and we resonate with them. Um, I don't know if I believe that, but, you know, whatever. The Akashic field. Morphic resonance can be specific to a species where the information um, that, that is held over the period of evolution of that species exists. And so right. new, new iterations of that species will have access to that accumulated information and mm -hmm. each generation will be better. Yes. So for instance, Rupert talks about uh, a snowboarder and how each new gain in ability or a skateboarder or a downhill skier or a golfer, each new ability builds on the past. And so mm -hmm. the new ones coming in will have access to this information and they will be able to take that gain and go the next step. So 100%. I think of the work of really with deep integrity, whether it's psychedelic experiences with the intention of spiritual growth, whether it's meditation to evolve our capacity to be in the moment and to see what is, and, and always be open to how we might grow. Those are things that are feeding these non-physical dimensions, be it the Akashic field or morphic resonance. And I believe this work is setting it up so that those who seek it now or after us will have an easier time of connecting to this information. And so it is critical work and it is valuable work and nothing is lost. Absolutely. And I, again, because we did have this conversation before we started recording, but I remember the point that had come up in me was that that could be 
our purpose. That mm-hmm. could be the reason we're here because I know that um, some people don't feel as if they have a purpose or something they want to get better at, become a master at this lifetime. Some people want to become a master painter or a master musician or a master cook or whatever it is. Um, I think that them knowing, you know, that everything you get better at helps the, the whole future human race. <laughs> yes. Is a reason to do it. You know, it's a reason to get better at something, one thing, whatever it is that calls you. And, you know, just try and hone that skill because that could very well be our purpose is just to get really good at something so that in the future, it's easier for people to progress on what we had accomplished. And to me, it makes sense that it would be stored. You know, I think that the science model would look at it like it's stored in DNA and we pass DNA on it would happen that way. But what I believe is more in line with this, this field, this morphic field, that there's a collective unconscious that we all have access to. And we get like a drip from the cosmos, you know, and we get this kind of like information download. Maybe it's in our dreams. Maybe it's in our, our spiritual practices. And we get more and more greater access to this information that is available through that kind of, you know, web, you know, it's almost like the web of Indra or something. Mm -hmm. Beautifully said. And so accurate. I was just going to say, as you were speaking, that we also want to develop a relationship with the Akashic field and with this dimension of morphic resonance so that we are actively seeking information that's Mm -hmm. there and tapping into what, our fellow humans and ancestors have generated and made available. And so even if it's the morphic resonance of the plant world, whether you're taking plant medicine to have a journey and you're accessing what they can share with you, or whether you're gardening and you're just trying to interact with your plants to know what do you need? How do I, how do I improve your situation you know, how, what's the relationship that we can have with your animals, you know, the pets that you might care for? Mm-hmm. How can we be tapping into these dimensions of consciousness in a way that not only we're doing our work and contributing to it, but we're also able, as you say, to receive information right. through our dreams, through intuition, through right. our, our awareness. Right. And that a lot of times is where um, maybe the best answers come from is going inward, you know, instead of, you know, because in in this day and age, you can Google the answer to any question, you know, Um, but, and, you know, look at, look for advice from other people in their situation. But really the probably best answer you'll get is from your intuition by going inward, you know, meditating, um, setting time aside to ask yourself in a deeper, that deeper sense of yourself, maybe that higher version of yourself, what to do about a given situation, you know? Absolutely. And, you know, Amit Goswami, um, he has a website and um, he did a documentary that I saw a while back, the quantum activist. And Mm -hmm. he describes it um, as do be, do be, do be. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, and, my brother, my brother knows about that, I think. Yeah. And so that. you do, and then you be, you mm -hmm. do, and then you be. In other words, action, reflection, action, reflection in equal parts. Mm -hmm. And that's where we are able, that's, that's when we're tapping in to that wisdom and the intuition, because we're leaving space and time and attention toward that information that comes from within mm -hmm. that's it that's it wow i think that is an incredible place to to wrap the the cosmic conversation but i did want to take a little bit more time and just discuss the film the way of the psychonaut you know can you give us you know what you would want the listeners to know about it you know what maybe for you is you know the biggest thing you've learned from creating it as well well, let's see. Um, I think I think Stan Groff represents something that's really valuable to this moment in human history. And that is, as a sort of a classically educated human being with a tremendous compassion for humanity, he represents an a very powerful perspective on what it is to be human and what's possible. And he if the film really describes his process of discovery, how did he come to understand what he understands? And, and you can see through the film that it's all based on scientific evidence, scientific, just what he experienced, what he witnessed. Some 5,000 case studies with patients showed him that there's birth memories being held in our bodies. And these birth memories are released from our psyche or they play out unconsciously and, and in determine our behavior. And so if we wanna be healthy, happy human beings, we need to turn inward. Mm -hmm. And then he also discovered we're spiritual beings and that the psyche in its broadest understanding is really the collective unconscious. And so we have a personal experience of it and then there's the collective experience of it. And it is tremendously wise and a true healer knows how to sit back and let the psyche heal that individual. Mm -hmm. and, and then Stan spent 14 years at Esalen Institute as a scholar in residence, and he invited quantum theorists, shamans, yogis, lamas, psychologists, philosophers, you, you name it, biologists. He had so many people come through and offer their information that gave this incredibly expanded understanding of, of who we are and, and what we're capable of doing. And so I just feel that watching the film is an introduction to this information that for me opens the door to people going deeper on their own journey. And so my hope is that from watching the movie, they'll, if they already know something about it, they've had psychedelic experiences, that they gain a deeper understanding. If they know nothing about it, that they recognize the wisdom and the power of, of this inner journey work and, and what's possible as a result of it. And then finally, what I gained from it was, you know, having these deep psychedelic experiences, I feel that a lot of my limiting beliefs have passed. And perhaps the greatest thing I have is I don't believe I'm afraid of death anymore because I recognize that I really am a spiritual being. I'm in physical form. I knew that as a little girl, um, but now as an adult, I really do believe that. 
So uh, that's what I took away from it personally. It, it gave me a deep sense of peace and a sense of purpose and a tremendous compassion and love for the natural world. Amazing. So everyone, that's Susan Hesloger. The website is thewayofthepsychonaut.com. It's releasing this fall. Please come to the website and sign up and you will get all the information when it's out. Thank you so much, Susan, for being here today. I really appreciate it. It was amazing. Oh, my pleasure, Matt. Love, love chatting with you.